The best part of what I do are the thank you notes from my clients. And I, I could get choked up talking about them, you know, handwritten notes about how you changed my life. Uh, you know, in the course of standing up for themselves and having us fight for them, they see something else. They see that they are worthy beings and they deserve justice. And when they get justice, it feels it feels really good. And that's that's the best part. Today, I have the great honor of sitting down with top high-profile attorney Lisa Bloom, who's been making momentous strides in women's rights for the past three decades. Being born to the legendary Gloria Allred, one of our country's most well-known and effective fighters for women's rights, the need to advocate for equality and stand up for the underdog runs in Lisa's blood. She made a name for herself by representing women in several nationally followed cases and has been paramount in shifting the narrative around sexual harassment and abuse, making the world a safer place for women everywhere to step forward and speak out. In addition to her impressive career as an attorney, Lisa is also a legal analyst, a successful talk show host, lover of the great outdoors, a devoted animal rights and environmental activist, and a prominent voice in the Me Too movement. Lisa Bloom, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Now, did Brayden tug your arm to come do this? Yes. He shoved me out the door See? and locked it behind me and said, do not come back until you're done with Jason Hennessy's podcast. <laughs> so I, I do as I'm told. So for those that are just listening, uh, Brayden has been a buddy of mine for about 15 years. And I met him. That's longer than me then because we're together 14 years. Well, no, then. No, it's not because you were there when I met him. Oh, it was it's in Atlanta at okay. Bubba Hett's house. Oh, my God. I remember that. At, yes. the, at the bend in the river. Yes, beautiful house it was yes. that's where i first met brayden and uh and i think you were there yeah i was there you were there he was on the show actually um and he told the story about how you guys met mm. and i wanted to see if your version see if it bears any resemblance yeah, to the truth uh-huh i want to yeah. hear your version well you know we all tell a story where we are the center of the story right exactly. so i know the way he tells the story and uh -huh. he tells the story in a very charming way so uh -huh. when people say how did you meet i usually let him go okay but he's not here so I guess I get to tell. Let's tell it. So uh, I lived in New York. I was an anchor at Court TV. It was December. It was the holidays. And I attended a benefit for Coats for the Homeless. And uh, I was with some friends. And uh, I knew Darren Cavanocchi, who was an attorney and was Braden's business partner and who had been a guest on my Court TV show. So I said hello to Darren and then this other guy who was kind of flitting around started talking to me and making the moves on me. And I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and um, Braden says to Darren, you're married. And he says to me, I'm Braden. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that so was far, his opening so far the line. Lined up. Yeah. And so I laughed and I said, well, that's nice. I have a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get him to buzz off, but he would not buzz off. And so we ended up talking for many hours that night. And the next day I invited the two of them, plus a friend of mine to uh, an event where I was speaking and they came. I found out later that he had Broadway show tickets, which he canceled to go hear me speak on this dumb thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Saturday night, we talked a lot too. Sunday, we talked and, you know, he was leaving. And by the end of that weekend, I knew that I really liked this guy and I had to do something about the boyfriend. So anyway, to shorten the story, I, a month later, dumped the boyfriend. Brayden and I started getting serious. And now... Here we are, 14 years later, married seven years, very, very Congrats. happily married. He's a good guy. Congratulations, yeah. Thank you. 
Well, for those that don't know, if you've been living under the rock or in the presence of a great modern, I want to call you a superhero. Oh, well. Right? Because you do so much work, uh, you know, women's rights. You're one of the pioneers of the Me Too movement. Um, you know, uh, it's really brave and bold work that you do. What drives you? Well, my clients drive me. So, uh, you know, I have a law firm and I represent primarily victims of discrimination, harassment, and abuse. And I hear these really harrowing stories every day of everyday people who are taken advantage of, abused, harassed, assaulted, raped by very prominent people. And they're always terrified. And the other side always has all the money and all the power. And I want to help them. And I, I really feel for them. And I feel a big responsibility. You know, we just won a big appeal against two major law firms in a sexual harassment case that we've been fighting for about five years. There's 850 lawyers in the law firms on the other side. There's 10 lawyers in my law firm. Wow. And we won. And we won because we're smart and we're on the right side. And we had the facts and the law on our side. And we, you know, we fight really hard. But it, that's very motivating. Congratulations on Thank the win. You. Thank you. So how does it feel to like have such an impact and to be involved in, you know, some of these big cases that, you know, they're not cases that nobody knows about, like right. very public so, cases. So, yeah, for example, I represented eight victims of Jeffrey Epstein and we fought very hard for them. We won all eight of those cases as well. And uh, it was really important. That's another guy, very rich, powerful guy. My clients were just everyday people. It feels good. You know, I have my, the, the best part of what I do are, are the thank you notes from my clients. Mm -hmm. And I, I could get choked up talking about them, you know, handwritten notes about how you changed my life. A, a lot of my clients are suicidal when they come to me. Wow. They didn't think anybody would ever believe them. They think they're worthless. And there's something about sexual assault that does that to make victims feel like they're, they should just die. And uh, you know, in the course of standing up for themselves and having us fight for them, they see something else. They see that they are worthy beings and they deserve justice. And when they get justice, it feels it feels really good. And that's that's the best part. Yeah. Um, now, on the opposite side, I'm sure you get probably a lot of like bullying and hate mail and stuff like that. How do you, how do you stay grounded with a lot of that negative? Well, I don't really pay any attention to it, honestly. Some of it's funny, and we we like send the email around and laugh at it. People, they're always like. The haters can't spell. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? <laughs> the your, your, and your, you know, with the apostrophe, they always get that wrong. Uh -huh. um, they, yep. you know, the swear words, they always get wrong. And how you misspell Lisa Bloom, I don't know, but they find a way, <laughs> Lisa Balloon. And, uh, I, you know, it, it really doesn't phase me. There, there was, I, I have gotten a fair amount of death threats. And so I am very careful to not put my home address on anything, by the way. Sure. You know, it's the holidays. I have to tell my friends, do not send me anything at my home address with my name on it. You yeah. know, send it to my office or send it to my home in my husband's name. <laughs> um, so, you know, I have to be careful in that way. Uh, there was one time where somebody was threatening my daughter uh, this is when I represented four women accusing Donald Trump of sexual assault uh, in 2016. And, you know, the Trump people came out there. They can be very violent and sure. very threatening. And so when they threatened my daughter, I actually did have to call the police and follow up. And because uh, that crosses the line. Of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got like a signature thing, right? You know, what do you deem as a classic Bloom case? <laughs> You know, it's a case that's really righteous, that mm -hmm. really cries out for justice. The one that 
comes immediately to mind is I represent right now three women accusing Paul Marciano at the company Guess of sexual harassment, sexual assault. And why I think of this as kind of a classic case is because I previously represented four women with the same claims in 2018. And as a result of those allegations, and we participated in the investigation, and then we we really pushed the issue, he was forced to step down in 2018. And we thought, okay, good. You know, we've gotten a measure of justice here. That's sure. what should happen. Mm-hmm. But then in 2019, they brought him back. Inexplicably, quietly, I guess thinking nobody would notice. And now I have three new claims against him. Wow. And, you know, that's just not okay. And uh, you know, if, if I'm not going to do this, who else is going to do it? There are a few other attorneys who do these kinds of cases, but not many. Yeah, Many people reach out to me and say, you're my last resort. And I think, well, does that mean you like called everybody else and I was yeah. last on your list? I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, mm-hmm. but, you know, there aren't a lot of attorneys who know how to do these cases, who do them successfully you know, who can meet payroll every week, which I have to do to pay my team and who can get justice for victims um, at the end of the day. So, yeah. And sometimes like these cases are not like, you've got to carry a lot of cause to take on these cases, absolutely right? Like, right? A lot of people don't realize that. People do not think about that. People, yeah. you know, so I have a private business, you know, I don't get any funds from any, you know, charities or anything. We have to, I have to meet payroll every week. I have 10 attorneys and another seven non-attorney staffers. So about 17 people. Of course, I want to pay them well, give them full health insurance, dental, vision, four weeks paid time off, you know, mm-hmm. every possible. That all costs money and I have to come up with that money somehow. And we come up with that money by being successful. We only get paid when we win. We do everything on a contingency. So we either settle the case or we get a, a verdict and that's when we get paid. So, you know, sometimes I've, I've had reporters say like, well, why do you take a cut at the end? Like, huh. well, <laughs> you know, nobody ever asks defense attorneys why they get paid. You yeah. know, they get paid hourly. Of course. Uh, often they get a lot more, paid a lot more than I do. If, if we get zero, I recover zero, right? So it's a big risk. And we have to shell out costs as the case is going along for experts or jury fees or deposition fees. So, so it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So now you've been doing this for how long? I've been practicing law since 1986. So whatever, God knows, what is that? 35 years. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. I can't believe it. Well, you look great. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So is this life and career that you have now, is it what you always envisioned it to be? Honestly, no, I never, I didn't really think I was going to be doing this. So when I was growing up, I did not want to be an attorney. I saw my, my mama's Gloria Allred for people who don't Mm -hmm. know. And she went to law school in her thirties. So I was in middle school at the time and I watched her do it and it was hard. She really struggled. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not that. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. It looks miserable. She was always in the library. She was always exhausted and I didn't want to do it. And then I was in college. Um, I was on the debate team. I won the national debate championship. And my mom said, uh, you should go to law school. And I've said, no. And then she said, well, just take the LSAT, you know, see how that goes. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, all right. So I, t- I took the LSAT and I did well. Okay. And she said, well, you know, just apply to law schools. It doesn't have to mean anything. 
Yeah. I, well, okay, I'll apply. So I applied and because I had won the debate championship, I got in everywhere. You know, we'll just accept, it, you know, it doesn't have to mean anything. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm going to law school. <laughs> You're on this path, right? <laughs> That's what it's like having Gloria Allred as your mother, you know. <laughs> I got duped into going to law school. Once I was there, I really liked it, actually. Uh-huh. Um, I really found it very interesting and I did I did like it. I still do, I do like it. Yeah. Yeah. I see your mom often. I see her because I go to like national trial lawyers uh-huh. and all the conferences and I always see her. Yeah. Well, tell her I said hello. I, I do. Yeah. I, now, yeah. I see her once a week. <laughs> uh, we usually go have lunch out at the beach somewhere and uh, we're very close. And she's she's a dynamo. She's at, at 80 years old. I mean, just try to keep up with her. Good y- luck. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I want to I get a little deeper into this. So, um, so mom had you young, right? She did. She was 20. Yeah. My mom had me at 18. Wow. Yeah. So. And I would say, you know, back then they had kids younger, but I'm older than you. I'm 60. Uh-huh. And I, I think 20, even then, that was pretty young. It's, of course it is. Well, it to was, have such a impactful career too, was uh-huh. mom kind of, she was being, she was a lawyer at 20 probably, right? No, she, was she didn't not. go to law school until her mid thirties. Uh-huh. So she was a college, she, the way she tells it is she got married as a freshman. She had me as a sophomore she got divorced as a junior and only graduated one semester late. Uh, she's in college. Okay. So she it all happened while she was in college. I my got my it. dad swept her off her feet. He was very cute and very charming uh-huh. and ultimately uh, a, a troubled guy. And so they got divorced. I see. Yeah. So now as a kid, right, your mom's significance in the world, right? When did you kind of realize like, wow, my mom's doing some pretty big things? So- she was a teacher when I was younger. And then I think I was about 13. She went to law school. I was about 16 when she finished and she started practicing law. And one day my stepdad and I were wondering where she was. She wasn't around. She wasn't answering the phone. We didn't know where she was. And we turned on the TV and there she was doing a press conference. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, my mom's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and how old were you? It's probably about 17. Okay. I thought, you know, if you have to look for your mother by turning on the TV. Yeah. <laughs> that's, um, and I think she was doing a press conference, but she represented women uh, jail inmates at Sybil Brand Jail here in LA who were chained when they were giving birth. Oh, wow. And she said, you know, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to get up and run away when they're giving birth. Sure. You know, or at least like lock the door. You don't have to chain them. That's really barbaric. Yeah, of course. So now you and your mom both have probably bold and strong personalities, right? What? Not probably. You think? Right. So what was it like growing up? Like, what did those debates look like? Did you win those debates with mom? Did she win those debates at home? Well, of course, in my mind, I always win the debate. And I think in her mind, she she always wins. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I was uh, tough. I was, you know, not the easiest kid. Um, But Overall, you know, the way she raised me was to use my brain and to think. And she didn't really care about like if my nails were done or what clothes I was wearing or what she cared about was what I was thinking about, what I was reading. Yeah. She, I remember one time she went to a parent teacher conference at my school and all the novels that had been assigned were written by white men. And she thought that was wrong. And, you know, I was kind of embarrassed. And then I thought, you know what? She's right. That is, that's not cool. Um, So... You know, she really taught me to to think deeply. And my dad as well. He was very much a free thinker. So, you know, as adults, um, you're right. Listen, and 
I think a lot of people are probably strong-willed and have strong-willed parents. And, you know, my mom and I are like that now, but we're also very close. And I think we've learned to kind of agree to disagree about things and focus on things that we have in common. Got it. Yeah. Pretty fascinating. You grew up in Philadelphia, but then you moved to LA. Is that right? I was in Philly till I was five. Okay. And then we moved to LA. My mom was a single mom at that point, And she was a teacher in Watts. And she was a teacher in Watts during the Watts riots in the late 60s. Yeah. And um, yeah, so and I, I we grew up I grew up in Burbank. Okay, beautiful downtown Burbank, as we used to call Very it. Very close to here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so when you're when you're a kid, like you said, you didn't want to be a lawyer. What what did you dream of doing as a kid? What did you envision yourself being? So I I really wanted to be a writer, and I I have written three books now. Um, yeah. But I wanted to be a writer and. Uh, later on, like when I was in college, I was interested in social work. I wanted to work with abused kids. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was in college, I volunteered at a battered women's shelter and I worked with the kids uh, who were, most of them were abused too. Hmm. And I found that to be very gratifying work. And my mom basically said, well, if you want to help abused kids, you could do it as a lawyer. Yeah. And I ultimately have represented a lot of abused kids and, and still do. Yeah. So it sounds like you found your purpose earlier in life. Yeah. I mean, look, we, most of us don't want to just do one thing. No. Right. Uh-huh. You know, when you're in high school and I've told my kids this, when you're in high school, you're, well, you take like seven classes and you're supposed to be good at all seven mm-hmm. for some reason. You know, nobody is, nobody's good at like algebra and foreign language and PE and right. Or very few people are. But then when you're an adult, you're supposed to just do one thing. I, I've always kind of rejected that. So I have a lot of different interests. I, I do like practicing law and I like what I do, but I like a lot, lot of other things too. And I think I'm a better person for being more being more well-rounded, I guess. Of course, yeah. So now when you first got into law, were you doing any other types of practices or were you always kind of focused on kind of what you're doing now? So I started, yeah, I was always interested in civil rights law. Um, And when I first started practicing law, I was doing some discrimination cases, but there really weren't any jobs that were just civil rights jobs. So I took a job at my first law firm that was mostly business law, business litigation. I've Mm -hmm. always done litigation. And then my next job was at a bigger firm. And then I went to my mom's firm in the 90s and I was there for almost 10 years. And that's where I really learned to do what I do now. I see. So now... What advice, like there's people out there, like young law students that want to become attorneys. Do you tell them, no, or (laughs) (laughs) don't do it? Well, you know, I don't encourage or discourage. It's Mm -hmm. up to, it's up to them. I, I, you know, like both my kid, my daughter's a lawyer and my son is a law law student right Uh now, but I didn't encourage either of them. It was Mm -hmm. up to them. Um, What advice, what would I have for law students? Uh, Do all the reading, do the extra credit. Don't screw around. I mean, I'm a like very serious person when it comes to my studies. I always was. Uh, my son right now in law school, uh, he just made law review and got a White House internship, if I can brag. Wow. And you know what? He works really hard. Yeah. He's always working. He's always studying. I mean, there's really, there's no shortcut. And I, I tell my team the same thing. I expect them to dig deep, read all the cases, review all the facts, talk to the client again, read the cases again, read the statute again think about it more deeply, you know, you really have to dive in. You know, there's a lot of lawyers now. Their competition is fierce. If you want to be a lawyer, I think most people do because they see it as a ticket to kind of a, an upper middle class life. Yeah. Um, which maybe it still is, but there's a lot of competition. So how are you going to distinguish yourself from the competition? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to 
you know, be this the smartest person in the room, the most knowledgeable on your subject matter. I don't think there's any substitute for that. No. Yeah. Kim Kardashian. Yep. Yep. Just passed the baby bar. Which I, I still don't even understand what that is. <laughs> Does anybody understand what the baby bar is? Uh, well, I think California is one of those states where you can become a lawyer without going to law school. Right? I understand that part. So I think you have to take the baby bar and then you have to like intern or work at an, at a firm for yeah, a I year understand or two, the interning right? part. Uh -huh. I don't understand that what it's like a little special bar exam. I, I don't for know. I little don't... special people. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> she took it four times and she passed it the fourth time. Okay, great. Yeah, you know, I, I I think it's probably better to go to law school. Honestly, why yeah. doesn't she go to law school? She's very wealthy. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. I, that's the question I would have for her. What's wrong with going to law school and actually learning the law? Because because you work in a law firm, you're only going to learn what they do, right? Mm -hmm. So she's she's interested in criminal defense. That's okay, right. Great. Good for her. Yeah. No, I, really, with all due respect, that's great. But you should still learn the full array of law school classes because it all comes to bear. I mean, so... It sounds like the easy approach, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but let me ask you this though, right? So Kim Kardashian, let's just say she becomes, I don't know if it's officially licensed to practice law, but I'm assuming Not you yet, have to right? be. Not yet, Not but yet, but eventually she will be, right? Yeah. 270 million followers. Yeah. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's a pretty big reach. That's amazing. Yeah. Right? So um, like, w what do you think that could mean if she does actually become licensed and she has that type of a reach? Like, I know you believe in the power of social media. I do. Yeah. Well, look, she, I mean, I've seen what she's done, which is representing uh, or, you know, getting her attorney because she's not a lawyer yet, uh -huh. but getting her attorney to represent the woman who was... Uh, incarcerated for like a life sentence for a minor drug offense yep. and she got her freed and good for her for doing that. That's right. You know, good mm -hmm. for her. And if she's doing more cases like that, uh, God bless her. And I, I wish her all the best. That's right. I mean, that's great. Good for her. Use your platform, girl. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I will say since I have a platform too, platform is doesn't really get you the legal results. It's the lawyering that gets you That's the legal. So you know, there's no judge or arbitrator who says, oh, well, okay, you had a good tweet yesterday, so you win. You know, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. But what she can do is get media attention focused on her cases. And with what she's doing, with trying to get, you know, prisoners released, that can make a That's big a difference. That's a good use of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I... I don't be evil, right? That's that's really, it's like <laughs> is, Google's motto, right? Don't be evil, right? Is that Google's motto? Yeah. Uh -huh. And do they live up to it? Uh, <laughs> debatable, <laughs> I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. I think we can do better. I think we could strive higher than that. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, obviously the work that you do, um, you know, you hear a lot of stories. You have to have a great deal of compassion, emotional support. Um, you know, do you ever feel like a therapist instead of a lawyer? Um, no, because it's actually very important and I train my team on this, that we're not therapists mm -hmm. and we don't want the therapist to play lawyer and we don't want lawyers to play therapists. Uh, therapists have a very important role. All of our clients are required to have therapists Okay, and we are lawyers, but required you know, by in the your more firm? 
Required well, by yes, your firm? Okay. We require it because it's always psychological injury cases is what we do. Sure. And you have to have a therapist to prove psychological injuries to testify that she has post-traumatic stress or chronic anxiety or depression or whatever it is. Yeah. So we need that person as a witness, but we also need that person to be there for our client when she's going through emotional anguish, which she will as the case goes on, right? Sure. But you know, in the broader sense, yeah, I mean, I, I had a client this month who was suicidal, who went to a mental hospital. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to her about that, talking to her husband about it. Um, that's not uncommon. So we do have to understand the emotional issues. And, you know, I talk to my clients very f straightforwardly about these issues. Um, you know, it's it's hard. We deal with a very traumatized population. We have to be compassionate and kind and respectful, but sometimes we also have to be kind of tough. Like if our clients don't get back to us, um, this came up in one of my cases today, a client isn't responding to calls for several days and we have some deadlines we have to meet. Yeah. That's not okay. No. You know, they need to be there, step up, participate. Um, so we want to be compassionate, but we also sometimes have to be firm. Yeah. It's important. What about this? Can money like weigh the skills of justice? <laughs> so money, of course, yeah. money helps in, with everything in life and it helps for sure in our criminal, in our civil and criminal justice system. Sure. So one example is investigators. So the other side will hire private investigators. My clients are always very upset. You know, somebody's going through my trash. Somebody's following me in a car. Somebody's calling up my mom and asking questions about me. That's that traumatic. is very, it's very upsetting. Mm -hmm. It's also legal and they can do that. Mm. They can go around and talk to people about you. And, you know, most of us who live the life, you can find somebody who doesn't like you, who's willing to say bad things about you. Sure. And now they've got a witness, you know, maybe to use against you, right? Yeah. Especially if you have an ex-spouse uh, you know, the, a lot of times there's that kind of person or you've ever been fired from a job or if you've ever been arrested and, you know, there's things they can dig up. We don't typically have the money for investigators, mm -hmm. but that's one of the reasons why I use the media. I'll talk about a case if it's something that gets media attention and I'll say, if you have information about this case, please contact me. Sure. And a lot of people do and that ends up being very helpful. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, in fact, I think you did that in the Bill O'Reilly case. I did. <laughs> right? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. That was a fun one. So Bill O'Reilly, in my opinion, was just somebody who was long overdue to be taken down for the things that he did to women. Uh, I remember, I think it was 2003, where Andrea Macris, a producer, sued him for sexual harassment. And I knew her a little bit. I, at that time, I was in New York working at Court TV. And... I just thought, this is ridiculous. And a couple weeks later, the case settled. She went away. We never heard from her again. And somehow he kept his job. And cut to like 2017. And my friend Wendy Walsh says, you know, this New York Times reporter reached out to me and she wanted to know if I was ever sexually harassed by Bill O'Reilly. And I was, but I don't think I should go on the record. I've talked to all my friends, Lisa. They all say I shouldn't do it. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And I said, Wendy, what do you think I'm going to say? Of course you should speak to her. Wendy and I, at that point, both in our 50s. And I said, if, you know, if we don't stand up against this, who's going to do it? You yeah. can't expect some 23-year-old girl to do it. You're established in your career. Your life is good. You need to do this so that this reporter can get this article out. And she said, well, what if he sues me for defamation? And I said, I will represent you for free in that case. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, uh, and, oh, and I said, and Wendy, uh, we're going to take him down. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, what do you mean? How, that's not possible. He's the number one cable show. He has Fox News standing behind him. I said, we're going to do it. I know how to do it. I've been doing this long enough. I know how. Just, yeah. just do what I tell you and we're going to do this. So, God bless her. She did. She went on the record. The New York Times article came out on a Sunday. Monday morning, we had a big press conference in my office. She told her story. And I said, he needs to go. And if he does not, if anybody else out there is a victim of sexual harassment by Bill O'Reilly, I want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. I will represent you for free. Please stand with us. Please reach out to me. Yeah. A bunch of other women reached out to me. We had to vet their cases. In the meantime, uh, I... I try to think about what to do for Wendy because I don't like a wrong without a remedy. And it, her case was time barred. It was too old because of the statute of limitations. And we decided to call the Fox News hotline because I happened to have from a prior case their internal policies in my file. And it said, anybody can call the hotline at any time. We will investigate. Aha. So we not only called the hotline, I made a video of Wendy and me calling the hotline and reporting it. And then I posted it online because I knew I wanted to keep this in the news. I didn't want it to be a one-day story. So we had to keep having news hooks to keep the news stories generated, right? Keep the pressure on. So that was going. Now they have to investigate Wendy. Now I have more clients calling me. We're vetting their stories. I fly out to North Carolina where accuser number two lived because she got cold feet, didn't want to do it. I remember standing in the rain in this parking lot of like some cheap hotel in North South Carolina where I was staying and she wasn't there and I had to get on my flight. And, was like, and finally she shows up. She's like, I don't want to go on camera. I said, okay, we'll just show your hands like typing in the hotline complaint. There it is. So we did that and then I posted it. And then I said to the, you know, to the Murdochs on Twitter, I'm going to keep going until he is gone. I'm not giving up. Hmm. He must go. I'm going to keep representing women for free until he is gone. A couple of days later, I had my third accuser. We sent in her complaint. I'd said the same thing on Twitter. And an hour later, they fired him. Wow. And I just Talk about tell power. that story because like, who am I? You know, some pushy broad from LA who doesn't like sexual harassment. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a combination of using the media, using the law, empowering my clients, And we took him down and it was long overdue. And of course, it wasn't just me. It was the New York Times reporter who put that story together, who broke that big story. It was the other victims who had spoken out. But all the other victims had signed non-disclosure agreements and they Mm -hmm. couldn't talk. That's why I needed new ones who could talk. I see. And that's how I had to get them was by appealing to them through the media. Wow. Well done. Fighting courageously for (laughs) those that can't fight for themselves. Um. Powerful, powerful, powerful story. Um, Do you think that that's kind of like a fear of women that want to come forward? The defamation? Yes. Yeah, right. Well, I've been sued for defamation. I've been fighting a defamation case myself for the last two years, three years now. Uh, Steve Wynn sued me. He's a billionaire from Las Vegas who has a number of women accusing him of all kinds of terrible things. Got driven out of his own company. I did a press release on behalf of one client. He sued me and I've been fighting that case. It's not pleasant. So yes, defamation cases are a fear. A lot of women are getting sued for defamation and it's it's awful. A lot of them reach out to me uh, and, you know, we do some pro bono cases, but I can't do every pro bono case. And, um... It's it's tough. It's a it's really hard when you get sued for defamation and the other side has money and you don't. 
Well, it's just the strategy, I guess, on their behalf. Again, there's the money weighing the scales of justice again, right? Right. But when you have um, those, like you can represent yourself, right? Well, I have an attorney. You do. Because, you know, you know what they say about people who represent themselves. <laughs> you have a fool for a lawyer. So, I mean, I can for a little while, but if it's a real case, which this is, I need a real lawyer. Also, it's in Nevada where I'm not licensed. I see. Yeah. Sometimes even if it's just frivolous, they don't care, right? It's just, I'm just going uh, to You know, you have fight to fight this. these cases. Yeah. What can I tell you? Um, what advice do you give? Uh, you know, you had mentioned that somebody, uh, one of your clients said that they've got a daughter that wants to go to law school, wants to be like you. Um, what advice do you have for those that want to follow in your footsteps? Um, do it. We need more people fighting for women's rights, victims' rights. Um, you got to be tough. Um I, I, you know, one of the things I tell my clients a lot is you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. Usually the hard thing is the right thing. You know, if you're deciding between two choices in life, the one that's really hard, the one that you don't want to do is probably the one that you should do. That's good advice. Right? Because if the easy choice was the right choice, you would have already chosen it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, it is hard what I do to be under attack all the time, to have a lot of responsibility uh, for people's lives and for my staff and so forth. But it's also extremely rewarding. And I would say very intellectually challenging, which I like. I, I couldn't do this every day if, if I didn't feel that way. And, you know, every case is different and interesting. And I like brainstorming. I mean, this morning I was brainstorming with my teams on a couple of different cases. Well, why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? You know, we get very creative, sure. which I enjoy that part. Um, but do it, you know, uh, corporate America has plenty of attorneys, no mm -hmm. offense, corporate attorneys, or maybe only a little, you know, they have plenty and you can be a drone for a corporate law firm all your life and make a lot of money. But is that really why you went to law school? Is that really what motivated you? Yeah. Uh, I don't get it. I think that work is very boring and unsatisfying. Um, so do what I do. It's more fun. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who has inspired you the most in your lifetime? Well, definitely my mom. Okay. I mean, I talk about a fighter. She is relentless. She does not give up. Uh, I don't know where that comes from, but she is stubborn. <laughs> and you do not want to be on the other side from her. And uh, I really admire that. Thurgood Marshall, the former Supreme Court Justice, the attorney who argued the Brown versus Board of Education case in the 1950s, which led to the desegregation of American schools, uh, is a big hero of mine. I have a big picture of him up in my office. Um, so those are, those are two of them. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What is a dream of yours that you have yet to achieve? So to backpack the entire Pacific Crest Trail. Ooh, <laughs> and I hear that's coming up here soon. So, yes. So tomorrow at 6 a.m., I leave uh, for nine days uh, on the PCT. But it's just to do a small segment of it, probably about 109 miles. But the whole thing is 2,600 miles going through California, Oregon, and Washington from Mexico border to the Canada border. And I've done segments I would really love to do the whole thing. It's called through hiking. It okay. takes about six months if you do the whole thing straight through. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a life where I can just disappear for six months. Although <laughs> anything is possible, Jason. <laughs> you never know. If I'm missing for six months, that's probably that's where, where I will at. be. Yeah. Hiking. Huh? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I uh, I don't know if I could hang. <laughs> <laughs> it's for not sure. for everyone. 
What are what are some other things that you uh, try to do to unplug from work? So hiking outdoors. Yeah, definitely everything outdoorsy. Mm-hmm. Um, I love skiing. Uh, last weekend, Braden and I were at Lake Tahoe snowshoeing. Nice. Um, mountain biking. Um, anything where I'm outside. I really I'm not meant to be inside. Yeah. I don't know why humans are inside so much now. I don't know what how that happened. I find it very antiseptic. You know, we're going to be in coffins for all eternity one day. Like, why are we boxing ourselves in? That's, That's just point. kind of how I feel. So uh, let me let me ask you this. So like, what would you say is a, a misconception, a common misconception about being a quote unquote celebrity lawyer? Uh, gosh. Um, I think one misconception is that like, all I have to do is write a letter and the other side will just cave. <laughs> like a lot of clients say, I just know if you would get involved and and be my lawyer, you know, they'll just give me everything I want. I'm like, you know, if only that were true. Yeah. So, I mean, there definitely are cases where I get involved and the other side does want to settle pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more often than not, if it's a big company, which is usually what we're up against, they're going to fight. So it's, you know, my name recognition doesn't make that much difference to them. I mean, it may be a little bit, but yeah. Um, I guess also, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what people think of me, so I don't know what the misconceptions <laughs> are. <laughs> well, I know you hosted your own daily show yes. for about eight years, right? That was like a five-day-a-week kind of job. Uh-huh, on Court TV. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, every time you turn on the news, you're on CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, you name <laughs> it, right? Um, do you still I, do any of that? Yeah, do I you? do a lot of that. Although now I would say it's more social media because uh, the news doesn't cover a lot of the kinds of things that I do. They don't cover a lot of women's rights stuff anymore, sure. I've noticed. I feel like I've heard about Me Too fatigue and that, you know, they're just not as interested as they once were. So, um, you know, for example, I mentioned these cases against Paul Marciano and Guess hasn't gotten very significant coverage has gotten a little bit as one reporter who is interested and she reports on each new accuser who comes out against him and a prominent photographer who spoke out about what he had seen. But for the most part, it doesn't get a lot of news coverage. Yeah. Um, but I do enjoy using my platform and, and using social media. And I do a lot of, I mean, I still probably do a, a couple interviews just about every day, whether it's a podcast or a TV show or radio interview or yeah print, whatever it is. Yeah. I got to think that social media had a lot to do with the Me Too movement, right? Yes. Like, because you would have thought like this could have happened years ago, right? You're right. And Mm -hmm. women started speaking out on social media and hashtag Me Too is how it it kind of blew up. Well, yeah, I have this story too. Oh, Me Too. Same thing happened to me. That's how it all began. Yeah. Powerful. And you were one of the pioneers behind that whole movement. Well, I mean, I think the Me Too movement you know, it was pioneered by a lot of people. I would, I don't know if I would say I was a pioneer of it, but I would say that I've been doing women's rights cases for decades. And, you know, whether it's fashionable or not, Mm -hmm. I've been doing them. Uh, You know, I sued Leona Helmsley in the 1980s on behalf of a pregnant woman who got fired uh, on account of her pregnancy. And I did AIDS discrimination cases. And when I was still in law school, um, and the AIDS epidemic was new. So this is something I've been doing for a long time. Um, the fact that the world has kind of caught up in taking these cases more seriously, that's good. Yeah. 
but you know, whether it's fashionable or not, whether people have me too fatigue or not, you know, I'm still plugging away over here with these cases. Yeah. No, I love when social media yeah. is used in the right way like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes there's a lot of wrong uses of social media, but that's certainly one of the, the positives with, uh, with social, um, other things. Let's see here. You've been a vegan for how many years? Um, I've been a vegan for, 13 years. And was that a Braden thing that tugged you a little bit? No, I tugged him. You tugged him. So I've been vegetarian since I was 16. So, you know, vegetarian means you eat like dairy and eggs, but no meat. When I was 16, I I looked at my dog and thought about how much I loved her. And I thought, you know, I would never eat her. So I went vegetarian at 16. And that was a long time ago. That was 1977. And it was pretty tough to be vegetarian back then. Sure. You know, they had no idea what to do with me, but I persisted. And then I started reading a lot about animal cruelty. And I realized that was being vegetarian was not good enough that, for example, the egg industry is probably one of the cruelest of all the way that the chickens are treated and Hmm. uh, the dairy industry is awful, you know, ripping the baby calves away from their mothers who scream when they're being taken away so that we can steal their milk. And I just thought it was wrong. And so I said to Brayden, I'm going to try going vegan. You know, it's probably going to be hard, but I'm going to try it. And he said, okay, I'll try it too. And, and was I, he a vegetarian before that? He or was no? mostly vegetarian because uh-huh. of me at that point. He still ate fish. And after about three days, we said, this is not hard at all. Why did we think this would be hard? You know, we live in LA. It's very easy to buy That's vegan right. products LA is at an a easy store. Place. Yeah. Uh-huh. You just substitute soy milk for regular milk and, you know, now oat milk or almond yeah. milk or, you know, it was very easy and we both love it. And once you go down this rabbit hole of vegan, I mean, not only do we not eat any animal products. We don't buy none of my clothes or my car or, you know, nothing that we buy has any animal products, no feathers, no fur, no leather, no wool, no silk. And it just becomes like how you live. I mean, we have a great life. We're not suffering. Mm -hmm. We have delicious food. We have nice things and we don't contribute to animal cruelty. And of course, it's also better uh, for climate change because animal agriculture is a significant um, driver of climate change. So, sure. Well, awesome. So we like to do a thing called Hennessy Heart to Heart, um, where I just ask a couple questions. Okay. First thing that comes to mind, you can answer it. And I'll start with this one since we're on the subject of being a vegan. If you had a last supper and could eat anything in the world, what would you ask for? Definitely pie. I love pie. Oh, I heard about your pies. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard about Uh, your pies. Yeah, I'm a pretty good cook. But Uh but if it's my last supper, somebody else is going to cook it. Yeah. And uh, like a really good peach pie, probably. Can that be just be my dinner? Does it have to be a dinner dinner? I I mean, seitan tacos with really good guacamole and and pie. That would probably be it. Got it. I'm I'm in. (laughs) What's something that you can't go a day without doing? Exercise. Um, I mean, of course, every now and then I do have a day without it, but, and then I'm very grumpy. So I really need to exercise every day. I like being healthy. I like being strong. Um, and you know, at 60, it makes a big difference, but it really makes a big difference at any age. You know, any age, I look at people my age, I'm like, what happened? Yeah. And usually what happened is they don't have a good diet and they don't exercise. That's right. So, uh, but I've always been this way since I was a little kid. I, my, my grandmother called it spilkes, okay. which is Yiddish for like 
ants in the pants. <laughs> um, you know, Lisa, you have spilkas. And then my kids, when they were little, they had spilkas. So I would take them to school half an hour early and get them to run around the playground and go on the monkey bars and mm-hmm. get their spilkas out. <laughs> then they could sit still. And it's kind, kind of the same. I have to run around in the morning. Your grandma defined her own word. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's something that you find therapeutic? I'm sure exercising is yeah. one of those. Anything else? I would say talking to my girlfriends. Okay. You know, friends, I think, are underrated. Friends are so important. Friends that you can just really let it all out with and they'll cry with you and laugh with you and tell you the world is crazy, but you're awesome. And <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have some dear girlfriends that I've been close with for many, many years and I love them. And that's essential. Nice. What's your favorite hobby to do alone? Reading. Mm-hmm. I'm a big reader. I love to read. People have to go away and leave me alone so that I can read. So that would be, that would be the thing. Who's your favorite historical figure? Um, so I love Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and that's largely because every word out of this guy's mouth was always brilliant. I mean, it's amazing. I've seen footage of, he's just walking down the street and a reporter walks up to him and starts talking to him. And he just, every word, you know how like if you write something that's really important, you'll write it and then you'll edit it and then you'll edit it and give it to somebody else and Uh they edit it. And then finally you have this nice polish. That's just the way this man spoke. Naturally. Right, just every word. Yeah. And, you know, he was so brave and, such a powerful speaker, you know, invoking the Bible and the Constitution and our historical origins and and fearless. Um, so he's somebody I've always just admired. And every time I see a new documentary or I, I read something else about him, it's I'm still amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where's one of your favorite places in the entire world to go? Lake Tahoe. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So I've dragged Braden up there a lot. Yeah, you said you guys might be looking at maybe buying something up there too. We might be, yes. Lake Tahoe is so beautiful. Have you been? I've never been. Uh, No. Uh Uh, So it's a giant uh, sapphire blue lake that's very clear and clean and deep, ringed by these beautiful mountains, which in the winter are covered with snow. And it's just stunning. Hmm. And and I like it for all the outdoor activities that are available there and all the cute little towns around the edge of the lake. It's just magnificent. I love the Sierras in general, the Sierra Mountains in California and Nevada. Just beautiful. Wow. You need to take the wife there and the kids. Yeah, you do. Uh-huh. And the Pacific Crest Trail runs through it. Not that you would notice. It's just a little dirt <laughs> trail. But to me, it's a big deal. <laughs> Who's the one person you can talk to about anything? Oh, well, definitely Brayden, my husband. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, after 14 years. In fact, a lot of our conversations begin, I would only tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that both ways, you yeah. know, like we don't have to be politically correct with each other. We don't have, you know, sometimes I'll, we can kind of use each other as a sounding board. You know, am I wrong to think that, uh, uh-huh. um, but I really, I really could tell him anything. That's one of the great things about Braden. He's always been the guy who's just whatever it you, we need to talk about, we can talk about it and it's okay. He doesn't get worked up about things. Yeah. And that's a great way to be. Yep. Who's on your top five most frequently called list? 
Um, my daughter and my son, okay, Sarah and sure. Sammy, because they are also both very good to talk to. And they're now 32 and 30. So they're real people. Okay. And I can talk to them about real things. And uh, they also will give it to me straight, which I appreciate. My mom, mm -hmm. um, who I see once a week, always. Um, my best friend, Julie. My good friend, Lon. Um, is that There's, five? That's five. There you go. There you go. What's something that you love about yourself? It's a hard question, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, well, I've been through a lot of hard things and I'm still here. That's one of the ways I look at it. Yeah. You know, a lot of high profile attorneys have flamed out. I think they fly too close to the sun and they get greedy. And uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking, but you know, I'm still here. <laughs> and sometimes I think, you know, I mean, I've been through some things. People have tried to drag me down and I've made mistakes and I've acknowledged them. And, you know, I, honestly, I think just continuing to put one foot in front of the other sometimes is the best revenge. When sure. People are coming after you. <laughs> Good answer. Do you believe in fate? No. No. Do you? I think so. Really? Yeah. So what is fate? Like things are just going to happen the way they're going to happen no matter what you do? Yeah, I think, you know, like I met my wife possibly because the stars and the moons were aligned. And <laughs> really? I don't know, maybe I believe in the fairy tale world. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we make choices and then the choices have consequences. You know, That's I chose true. to be there that night. Brayden chose to be there that night. The guy I was dating chose not to come, even though I told him to come. <laughs> if he had been there, I, you know, and I wouldn't Brayden have. Brayden would not have shot. If Brayden, I wouldn't have yeah. talked to him for hours. I would have said hello. Yeah. And then, you know, when your boyfriend's <laughs> lurking around, you're not going to talk to some other guy for hours, right? Yeah. So, you know, I don't. I, I think that we all make choices. I mean, we don't completely control our lives. There's a lot of forces beyond our control. Yeah. But, you know, like the expression, the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's true. I mean, I think yeah. we, or was it, I think John F. Kennedy said, things don't happen, things are made to happen. Sure. And I think for the most part, things are made to happen. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen something that you can't explain? Oh, God. Uh, you know, if you think about birds flying in giant groups, flocks, and they're an inch apart and they don't touch and they go for miles and they turn as one. How do they do that? Or fish, same thing, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, you know, there's a lot of things that can't be explained. Love, like what is really the purpose of love? Love is wonderful, but but why do we... It's, is it really evolutionarily needed? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think um, animals, I love, you know, we always have rescue dogs. We have two wonderful rescue dogs now. You know, the connection between humans and dogs, how do you explain that? Yeah. It's just great. Do they love us? I hope so. I think so. Yeah. Do they? I don't know. Or do they just want us to feed them? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But you can't explain it. The human-animal right? connection, yeah. You haven't seen any of these questions, and you're just so eloquent with <laughs> answering them. I'm no. impressed, right? Uh, oh, thank you. So good. What's one thing that people have always misunderstood about you? Um, I don't know. I think people think I'm all one thing. Like, I, uh, you know, I tell people I'm going backpacking. They go, you're going backpacking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know what you think about me that that would be surprising. <laughs> or Brayden and I used to go to Burning Man before the pandemic. We went six years in a row to Burning Man. 
totally a blast. Mm-hmm. People would say, you go to Burning Man, you know? Yeah, that's Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm a hippie chick. <laughs> and I like camping out in the desert. And I like putting on crazy clothes and dancing mm-hmm. all night. And if you don't know that about me, then you don't really know me. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you cried in a movie? Oh, um, gosh, I, I, I am very easy to cry in a movie. Yeah. It's not the last time, but the one that just comes to mind is the one that I cried the most, The Notebook. Oh, I yeah. mean, I didn't know there was that much liquid in my head. That Did could... you just see it recently? No, or? Okay. I saw it years ago, but I cry. I literally did not know that much liquid could come out of me. Yeah. I mean, it was just volumes of liquid. And then, I mean, I just cried like a crazy person. And then I saw it like a year later on a plane. Uh-huh. And I cried all over again <laughs> on the plane. There is <laughs> something about that movie? movie on a plane? Yeah. I, right? I've, guys cried that movie too. Yeah. Well, for if you have a soul oh, or yeah. a heart, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, that one. And the one that gets me too is uh, Good Will Hunting. Uh, I remember There's that a movie. part where um, Matt Damon is is talking with um, Robin Williams. Yeah. yeah. And he's just therapist. And he says, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault because he's been abused like mm. his whole life. And mm. and it just gets me. Yeah. yeah, it gets you. It does. Wow. Yeah. But I don't really cry it's in very movies. Touching. So that, but that one gets no me. Because you have no soul? Or- <laughs> 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 I hope not. <laughs> Are you religious or spiritual? You know, I'm not really either. No. Um, I, I would have said I'm more spiritual, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. But, you know, I'm really not. I mean, unless you define it very, very broadly. I can be awed by nature. I can look out at a beautiful mountain or sunset or Lake Tahoe or, you know, and, and say, oh, God, this is just incredible. This is otherworldly. But I'm, I'm really not. I'm more of, I'm a very logical person. I'm a very go. kind of grounded in reality person. Mm-hmm. If a genie granted you three wishes right now, what would you wish for? More wishes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I would wish to stop climate change climate crisis um, because it's really should be the number one issue. And I say this all the time, this should be the number one issue. And yet in my life, it's not the number one issue. It's not the number one thing I work on, Mm -hmm. but it should be, it really should be for all of us because it's destroying our planet and destroying our children's future. So uh, stopping climate change and, you know, the acidification of the oceans and deforestation and uh, stop uh, destroying habitats. And, you know, that's a big issue in my head. I, I went camping this summer and up by some lakes and there were no bugs hmm. and almost no birds yeah. because this is what we've done. Yeah. And, you know, our, will my grandkids get to see the beautiful natural places that I've seen? Maybe not. Will they have to deal with giant fires and floods and storms and uh, yeah, they will have to. That's not a maybe. They will have to deal with that. Yeah. Um, so that would certainly be number one. And, you know, after that, human rights would be number two and number three. And number three. Yeah. Nice. On a lighter note, mm-hmm. what is your Starbucks name? 
<laughs> well, I just learned about this from yes, Braden, but Braden's I didn't know this Braden's was a thing. Braden's La Boutica. Did That's he tell right, you that? He did. See, we couldn't remember that. Yeah. So I don't go to Starbucks. Braden, I mean, I don't like boycott Starbucks. I just, I'm not interested in Starbucks. Uh, I bring my little water bottle. Mm. Um, but my trail name is Indigo. Indigo. Is that, okay. is that a sufficient answer? I think so. Um, yeah. yeah at least you we, can we understand all have it. Yeah. We all have trail names when you're out on the trail. You don't use your real name because you get to be this other person. So Indigo, because that's the color of the sky at sunset. And it's like my favorite it. color. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you so much <laughs> for coming down to the studio to speak oh, with me thank today. Thank you. Very honored. Yeah. As a father of a precious little girl, oh. Brooklyn, she's five. Oh. I just want to thank you for the massive contributions that oh. you bring to light in some of the darkness in this world. And so I'm touched and I'm honored. So, Well, that's a very sweet thing to say. We'll give Brooklyn a hug from me. Yep. Good for her. Raise her up to be strong and fierce. That's I'm it. sure you will. Yep. So Little girls are the best. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's very sweet. Thank you, Lisa. This has been the Jason Hennessy Podcast. This show is produced by Whitney Welsh and Jenna Kershaw, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher, and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 